This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening. My name is Cheryl Peach. I'm the director of Scripps Educational Alliances at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, UC San Diego. I'd like to welcome you to the Jeffrey B. Graham Perspectives on Ocean Science Speaker Series. It's my great pleasure this evening to welcome our speaker, Jen Moffitt. Uh, she's the Senior Director for Animal Care, Science, and Conservation here at the Birch Aquarium at Scripps. Jen is celebrating, actually, uh, just now her eighth year at the Birch Aquarium. I can't believe it. It seems like she got here just yesterday. And all told, believe it or not, she has 25 years of experience in public aquarium uh, husbandry, veterinary practices, conservation, diving, life support, uh, and all other things required to manage a large aquarium. So she brings great experience, and we've really benefited from that. Jen um, is someone who has brought her expertise in not just fishes, but in vertebrates, birds, penguins, mammals, uh, (laughs) reptiles, and amphibians, and it's really helped shape Birch Aquarium's approach to connecting our community, you and others, to the ocean and to the science at Scripps. Jen has really been a driving force behind the Beister Little Blue Penguins exhibit. Uh, She's led the team on this incredible journey that you're going to learn about tonight. Um, And this will culminate, as you likely know, next month on July 12th with the opening of the the newest and largest to date uh, live animal exhibit at Birch Aquarium at Scripps. Jen, I want to welcome you and thank you for sharing this wonderful story of the Beister family Little Blue Penguins. Wow, uh, thanks so much, uh, Cheryl. I really appreciate that. So, uh, you know, I was asked earlier, actually, this evening um, by one of our guests, you know, what gets me excited? Or how did I get into this? And, you know, it was like, it was on accident, actually, that I got into this. I I am a biologist, that's what my degree is. And I was like, I'm going to do marine microbiology. I love parasites, I love disease. This is just the best. So I ended up landing this internship, actually in husbandry and uh i i thought it by the time i was done like what the, what okay i can study disease in animals that i can take care of like this is just the most amazing um career that i could ever have and so you know for me uh like this is my passion uh doing this job and so i hope that during this presentation that i take you on a little bit of a journey from you know, understanding about these penguins, why Birch Aquarium decided to move ahead with them. And you understand a little bit of fact-finding, that sort of thing. But we change, we inspire, we promote, we want you to become, um, you know, passionate yourselves. And, I mean, how can you not really be passionate about little blue penguins, right? Okay, so this is, this is our charter for today. Whenever we go on our journey, we're going to talk about natural history, just the basic facts about little blue penguins, and we're going to get into the animal care and health program that's at Birch Aquarium, and then we'll touch on our conservation work that we do, and then also animal science, and then we'll explore just a little bit of the Beister family little blue penguin habitat. So natural history. What are these birds? How did we arrive at... at wanting to do little blue penguins at Birch Aquarium. I mean, it's very different than what we've ever done recently, you know, and this is 
as Cheryl had mentioned, a, a larger installation that's been within the last 30 years. So why little penguins? Well, there's a lot of reasons that go into how we shape the animal program. And, you know, one is charismatic um, behaviors, right? We're, we're really looking for something that's going to make people excited about our oceans. Not everything has to be just about just the science. We want you to love what you're looking at, too, and be entertained by that, have fun with it. But then we also realize there's a plight, there's a story, there's birds need our help, and so we want to be able to, um, you know, convert that here. And little blues, they're boutique. They're boutique like us. They're tiny. It fits really well with us. So that's how we arrived at it. But, you know, I'm going to walk you through this a little bit. So little penguins, they sit within uh, 18 other species of penguins in the world. So think about that. Only 18 other penguins are in the world. And we're going to have one of them here. They're also known as fairy penguins or carore, uh, little or little blues. And here in the United States, we talk about them as little blue penguins. They thrive in temperatures very similar to our own just off of San Diego coast, so it fits really well with how we live here. The ambient air temperature, the ambient water temperature, the kelp forest, everything that you see when you go to the beach is very similar. Even the rock structure is very similar to what you would see in the areas that they're found in southern Australia, Tasmania, and New Zealand. They spend all their days out in the water, swimming, hunting, and then at night, every single night, they come in, and they come in in these large groups up onto shore, and they spend the night in their burrows. <laughs> Did you know that they're about the size of a California burrito? <laughs> so, yeah, they're, I mean, I don't think they'd be as tasty as a little, you know, but anyways, they're just under 15 inches tall. They're actually closer to 12 to inch, 12 inches to 13 inches tall and under two pounds. If it's a two pound penguin, he's eating pretty good. So we just, they're a little lighter than that. And it does uh, kind of go up and down based on what they're doing. Um, and we'll talk about that later. So longevity in the wild, they live to about six years. They have a lot of complications uh, that are out there in the wild that influence their lives. But here in human care, they can live up to 20 years, possibly longer. They've only been in human care now for a limited time period. They are sexually dimorphic, so that just means that you can tell the difference, but it's really hard to tell the difference. If you're looking at them, whenever we open, look for birds that are a little bit bigger and birds that have a longer beak those are going to be the males. But typically, you can't really tell it so uh, overtly. Behaviors. It's true. They waddle. I think you've probably seen that, right? And waddling um, actually is a, is a response that's normal because especially in um, burrowing penguins where they go into the hillside or they go into grassy areas or into dirt, they dig in and they lay down. They kind of have a hunched over waddle to them and that's just they're awkward on land they're not really built for that but you know what they are built for is swimming really well so they're built like these little torpedoes and in fact their latin name means good little divers eudipula minor is their latin name so get this though they consume a half a pound of food daily if you converted that to how much you eat that's like 38 pounds of food that you would eat every single day. So I don't know what you eat, but say, let's, maybe you eat uh, a hamburger. Think how many half-pound hamburgers, right? 80, 
Right, that's a, that's significant. So they do spend all their days out there in the ocean hunting after krill and squid and silver fishes like sardines. They need to be able to live inside that cool water and keep that metabolism going. So it's really important that food is prevalent and present for them to consume. And so we're able to provide that clearly. Um, but with that, what happens? Every five, ten minutes, we have a lot of defecation that can happen because they are uh, eating just that much. So just some fun facts about them. Um, it is uh, part of you know keeping uh, animals, too, is like the cleanup of them and what they need is very uh, important, like being sanitary. So defecation at five to ten minutes is pretty significant. Um, so social, they are. They're very social. So every night they come in, like I said, but they come in like 200, 400 birds at a time, no less than like six birds at a time. They're always going to be with each other. However, there's periods of time during the seasons based on what's going on in their lives, what's going on in the colony in which they're really not going to be so friendly with each other. So there's going to be competition. There might be some territorial disputes. That's my burrow, and they're going to go in and, and start to you know, fight over that. Now, that's all related to sexual activity typically, so nesting. They're establishing a nest um, there could be courtship behaviors that happen. Maybe they're raising some babies so they can really go at it and they can even steal each other's eggs. So they can, during certain periods of time, maybe not be so social, but generally they are a pretty social group. Now, when I say that they're aggressive, this isn't... Um, resulting in any kind of lives lost they don't typically do that it would be just biting and maybe a little bit of nips and um, some smacking but nothing that would result in any kind of mortality so i have a little video here of our birds here um, just to show how they move they are considered colonial so they like to live in a group so they follow each other you see this how they hang with each other they're going to go wherever the group is going it's kind of like schooling. Now, little penguins are non-migratory. Non-migratory means that they're not going to leave their home states of Australia, New Zealand, or Tasmania. You might see in uh, other penguin species where they actually will migrate to other countries or to different faraway regions and come back again. Uh, little penguins have a sense of home. That's where they're going to be. So let's talk a little bit about how do they communicate. So they live inside this colonial social network with each other. Um, they have multiple ways to communicate with each other. And I'll play a little bit of what is considered... Um, a display vocalization, which could be uh, just a contact or possibly a threat, so they feel threatened to their nest. Um, this is not an attractive sound, but it's very effective. So imagine these birds are sitting around a nest and another bird comes in is trying to take over. They're then now in a squabble with each other going through communication threats back and forth. Now for the other vocalizations that are pretty common, it could be a sexual cue to each other or maybe a contact call or individual recognition. We often hear this in our own colony here at Birch Aquarium. 
And the picture shows one bird kind of standing upright. He's got his wings back and his mouth is wide open. This is what he's making, this noise right here. Right. Yeah, so they, uh, at any given time, we can hear them communicating to each other uh, in the behind the scenes area. And some, uh, usually these vocalizations come with a physical appearance or a visual where they could be flapping their wings or their head will denote what they're communicating as well. Sometimes they position their head downward and they like go to, and then, uh, you know, so it's really uh, very exciting uh, to be able to, to see that. So I've kind of already segued us into animal care, you know, in the sense that we're hearing these vocalizations. These are things that we're watching for in our own colony, and we'll go into what we do at Birch Aquarium. So I think many of you have probably met some of the Birch Aquarium team, uh, the husbandry staff in particular. The center picture uh, where they're wearing the red, that's the entire husbandry team. They have uh, professional and um, backgrounds that are varying from being um, fish biologists to invertebrate biologists. That could be coral experts. It could be seahorse experts, uh, reptiles. So there's pretty diverse backgrounds. And then we also work with UC San Diego's animal care program, which is the veterinary team that come down and assist us with weekly rounds to make sure that everything is going smoothly with our population, and that is in the photo on the left. And then uh, in the center is Kayla, and Kayla joined us a couple years ago as a professional aviculturist. She's an avian husbandry person. She has many years of experience taking care of many types of birds, but in particular uh, penguins. And so we, you know, this program for us to succeed really needed to have the expertise of someone who is very familiar with penguins themselves. So we were very happy to have Kayla join our team and lead this program. So part of daily care, I talked about uh, some of this a little bit. The biosecurity and cleanliness is really important. It is for animal care anyways, but it it really is very important when it comes to uh, avian husbandry just because they're very sensitive to what's happening on land. You imagine the fish, they're underwater, and then you're dealing with life support, aquatic life support systems and water treatment. You still have to do that with penguins, but now you're dealing with things that are on land. And so being clean is and sanitary is critical to it and also protecting the bird population from anything coming in so personal protective equipment foot baths that kind of thing is really important to protect the colony as a whole life support system operations you can see in the center picture this is really important for penguins because amount of food they eat right and we talked about how much they defecate so that is an exorbitant amount of waste that's going into a system that needs to be polished and cleaned up and so life support systems for penguins are really very much larger than what you would have just by uh, having a coral system for example although maybe not as complicated it's just a different type of setup that we have to have and with that we need to have experts and you can see Chris in the center of the photo he's our senior life support aquarist and he that is his professional expertise so when we're looking at the daily care of the birds we need to be able to identify them that could be through uh, bracelets that are on their flippers and those are color ID'd and 
It could be through uh, nutrition, making sure that the birds are eating the way that we need them to eat and preparing their diets uh, in accordance to safe guidelines, um, and then making sure that they are eating properly and then having supplements like vitamins. Team communication is a big deal, and including observation and record keeping. So that's generally um, the husbandry duties as a whole. Um, they are a jack of all trades when it comes to the work that they do. They can be jumping in and sawing something or going over and taking care of an animal and then running over and doing life support. So they're very experienced, not just in the biology of things, but in general animal care. So to make sure that our penguins are really doing well, uh, we want to make sure that we're keeping our eyes peeled on conditions and kind of exams that may need to happen maybe at once every six months to a year, but then every single day they need to keep their eyes peeled on it, which is that daily care portion. Here you can see on the first picture on the left that uh, Dr. Jackie, Kayla, and myself are uh, restraining one of the birds for a physical. This is just a standard physical. There was nothing wrong. It was actually us bringing the birds in. We wanted to make sure that their health condition was normal. We checked them overall and then report that back, and then we monitored that over time into a record-keeping system. Um, we also want to watch the, the diets and how they're consuming their food and then behaviors as a whole. So those vocalization um, that we talked about before are really key to understanding their behaviors and how they are doing physically. So this video is multiple photographs that show us doing uh, physicals uh, on penguins. Here we're checking the throat birds getting weighed, we check their temperature, we need to listen to their lungs, make sure that their lungs are clear. We look at their feet really closely, take photos, document it, look inside their throat, and do an overall workup. That fits into the, our preventative health program. And as I talked about, we're already looking at the conditions of their overall physical appearances, their beak, their feet, their eyes, their feathers. But we're really kind of looking for, are there anything, you know, things that we need to be concerned about? Could there be congestion in their lungs? How are they breathing? Are they panting? Are they coughing? Do they have any limping or favoring of a leg? Um, how's their their feathers molting. So in this picture, uh, the big picture on the right, that bird is going into a, what's called a catastrophic molt. They do this one to two times a year based on what's happening. They pushed all their feathers and their entire body out in a two-week period of time. During the time leading up to that, they consume a ton of food. They get really swollen and they're more on that two-pound side of things. They're getting ready for those feathers to be pushed out. And then this is what you're seeing is these feathers are kind of popping out. And he's kind of got a little mohawk and everything coming around off, off the back. Leading into that, you might start to see feathers that don't really look so great. And that's what the smaller picture is, is a wet penguin. So uh, you would say, well, penguins get wet. Well, actually, they don't really get wet. Their feathers keep them um, protected normally. And so whenever they start to get a wet appearance, that means that they're probably going to be going into molt soon and they probably aren't going to be swimming as often because that's something we would want to be paying attention to. So blood work, serology, culture, and cytology are all tools that we use also to make sure that the birds are good and healthy.
So little penguins have, um, or penguins in general actually, and birds, have unique health conditions that maybe are a little bit different than other animals. Stress, I think that's probably true about any animal, right? That stress can be um, something that they mask, that they hide, and that you don't really see right away. And so uh, we try to put them in situations where there wouldn't be any stress, right? But we would want to make sure that we're watching for anything that could be an indication of stress. Physical injury, um, little penguins or illness. Little penguins have a tendency to get what's called pododermatitis, which is bumblefoot. And you just imagine your hand, right? And you've been standing on it, and then maybe you've stood in it, and it's not the greatest substrate, right, because it's dirty. And then you start to get marks and lesions and things like that that kind of penetrate in and that can end up being an infection and so we watch for are there lesions are there um any kind of you know lesions or ulcerations is the foot hot is there anything that could be worse about that and then we'll um, evaluate it and treat it to prevent it from ever happening but they are prone to this in general and so um, i'll talk a little bit more about bumblefoot in a couple slides hypothermia it's totally possible because I was saying to you about the uh, penguins getting wet feathers. If they are wet, that means that it's possible their skin is wet, which means that they can then get cold. So we have to watch for that. That can um, quickly impact them. So even though they spend their whole day being out in the ocean, they're not really getting wet. Only their feet and parts of like their face get wet. So whenever their feathers are impacted, that could actually make them get cold. Vice versa is they get hot. They're really restricted to it. So if it gets too warm here, then they'll end up um, having to get cooled down. We can spray them with water and that sort of thing. But when we were listening to their lungs and their respiratory system, we really want to be paying close attention to mosquito-borne illnesses like avian malaria. And maybe you've heard recently in the news that uh, the avian influenza has been coming up and it's been impacting the East Coast and kind of spreading over to the West Coast. So we've been really watching that very closely because it's a virus that can impact their respiratory system, as well as some other ones called Mycobacterium and Aspergillus. Ones that can be communicated or through bird-to-bird contact, like the avian flu, we watch through um, an app called BirdCast. So you can see this image shows how birds are flocking in the United States. This was on June 6th, though, and this they're moving from Texas up through the Midwest to the north. So we're really watching, are the birds starting to head over to the West Coast at all? Or are they, you know, and paying attention to how that could influence um, them coming into California? We work very closely with uh, multiple veterinarians for the state as well. So Bumblefoot. I talked a bit about this already. It gets into their skin. It can be into their feet and into the deep tissue and end up causing um, an infection that gets more complicated uh, if not dealt with. And so radiography or x-rays are a good way to tell if it's become an issue that's further uh, into the bone. But typically local treatments or um, systemic antibiotics can be effective But if you prevent it in the first place, that's really the best route to go. And in this picture, you can see Ian um, and Kayla are working, taking photos of the penguin's feet against a graph so that we can see the size if there's any lesions. We do it across the board no matter whether they have any bumblefoot or not, just so we're tracking that information constantly. In our new Penguin Care and Conservation Center, which is located in the new habitat, 
we are going to have state-of-the-art medical state-of-the-art medical care for the birds. So the radiography unit that we see is in this first um, picture on the left. Kayla is holding a bird and it's being anesthetized. You can see the mask is over the bird's face and the bird will go to sleep. And then after it's resting, we do uh, radiography exams to make sure that the general bone structure is looking good and everything looks normal. We also have other equipment that uh, we will be using, uh, like an endoscope to be able to internally examine the birds and uh, incubator and a brooder. Uh, which are if we have birds that need assistance in um, rearing chicks, then we would end up having that behind the scenes to be able to support them. The Penguin Care and Conservation Center not only serves the birds and the husbandry staff um, behind the scenes, we're actually opening our doors uh, to our guests to be able to come and have a, a tour and be able to experience uh, and meet with the husbandry staff and meet with the penguins. So we'd like to be able to have that connection with our guests so that they get a, a true understanding of what it takes to take care of uh, little blue penguins. So we'll get into conservation. So little blue penguins are at risk and they're declining. So we talked a lot about the food and the availability and how important that is. That is probably the biggest thing that's been happening to them, that they're seeing changes as the birds are spending time out in the ocean and either not returning to where they were or they're returning too thin and the, the food is not really there. And so the food itself has either left the area or the birds are leaving the area. And so that's becoming more and more actually of an issue. Now they have other um, concerns that you know are, I would say unfortunately, but they're typical and that could be gill netting um, where they get entangled in a net um, during fishing accidents or maybe there's oil spills that often will impact um, the birds and all wildlife in those areas. We're really paying close attention to plastics and microplastics in water and how that's impacting. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. And this species of penguin actually is more than any other lives in and among people, whereas others really are more remote. And so you can see that they're having impacts from humans being in and around in good ways and in bad ways. Uh, there's nest box that, that people will build and they'll put them on their patio um, so that the birds can come up and nest underneath their patio. But it also is infringing upon the space that they're used to uh, being in. And, you know, having uh, uncontrolled dogs and cats is a real problem for little penguins because they're coming up on the shore, they're going near people's houses, and then there's dogs and cats that unfortunately um, hurt them as well. So what are we doing about that? Um, so Birch decided, you know, we decided we were going to be part of a species survival um, plan. It's a species management program. And there's only uh, five other institutions in the United States that have uh, little blue penguins. And a species survival plan basically is going to promote sustainability of that population over 100 years. And I mean sustainability, meaning genetic, healthy, diverse population. So amongst those five or now six institutions, we have genetic stud books. And those stud books influence how uh, our animals breed here. And we work with um, a collaborative out of Australia as well. And that's Ballarat Zoo, Melbourne Zoo, and Taronga Zoo. So the founding genetics actually, in 1958, 
the first little blue penguins arrived into the United States. But it wasn't until almost uh, 30 years later that husbandry's success in breeding and importations of the little blues led from a population of about 15 birds to 120 birds. So it, you know, it, it's pretty interesting to think how much the population has changed. And just in, you can see in the graph here how much it spiked. The blue line on the top reflects uh, the total number of birds. The red and the green are the male and the female, um, and how much it spiked during that time in husbandry's success. So why am I telling you that? It's because, you know, thank you again for being here at Birch Aquarium because zoos and aquariums do make a difference for populations, and you can see how much uh, of a difference it's, you know, even just in the last 20-some years it's been. Um, actually, it's been longer than that, right? Um, so, you know, with that, Birch Aquarium then imported 15 birds just this past year in from Australia. And so the numbers reflected here aren't yet shown, so we'll be glad to see those numbers soon. I'm not going to go through this chart, so don't worry. <laughs> but <laughs> it's like pretty intense looking. So the first line, if you look at the top, it says founders. So founders are the founding uh, genetics of those penguins. So the first penguins that ever arrived, or, but they're not ever because it's in 2002, starting in that column, there's 25 founding genetic available birds. And by 2020, uh, there was almost double. And then we brought in another 15, which is not reflected here. So all the 15 that we brought in go into the founder. The founders are the ones that are basis for uh, the genetic pool that we have within the United States. So if you look at uh, years, the gene diversity at 100 years, which is um, you can see that we had only 72% um, genetic diversity back in 2002, and we're going to be well over 90% with our uh, latest import. So importation and sharing of genetic, genetics between our institutions is really critical for the sustainability of the population. So it's not as simple as, we're just going to get some birds from Australia. So it, it took... I think I started this conversation in 2014 to try to get us into the program, the Species Survival Plan program, and it, is, it has taken seven years for us to be able to work this uh, agreement and the, the transport um, in. So I'm going to take you on a little kind of virtual trip of if you were a penguin and you're leaving Australia, you've got a nonstop flight, uh, and it's going to be about 32 hours. You're going to leave Ballarat Zoo and arrive in LA. And then during that time, after that, we'll have a 33-day layover uh, with USDA before you come to Birch Aquarium. So here the birds are um, being loaded into transport boxes in Australia. Okay, last one being put in the crate. We just had a visitor coming to see what we were doing. Mum and bub. Okay, last two are in the box. I don't know. I've never been to Australia, but that was a kangaroo and a joey just like standing in their alleyway. Uh, so they were just loading up at three in the morning and uh, there was her, her mom and the baby um, just joining them for adding the birds into that. So I thought, wow, that's just perfect for these birds. So, um, you know, for this whole transport. 
Okay, so I, I spoke a little bit about the complications of transporting birds, right? So we have to be able to put them into the transport box, which you just had seen. Um, you can see it in the picture here uh, in Australia. We worked with Qantas Airlines and multiple institutions out of Australia to be able to coordinate this transfer because not all of the birds came from one location. And then it was coordinated by an, a species survival plan coordinator out of another zoo. And then out of the United States, we had our five players, plus all the permitting that has to go into it with U.S. Fish and Wildlife. Um, and then of of the folks in the United States who were participating, um, Cincinnati Zoo and Botanical Gardens, Adventure Aquarium, Dallas World Aquarium, but really SeaWorld San Diego was really instrumental, uh, as well as USDA, um, as far as being able to bring the birds in and do it um, the way that it needed to be done according to regulation. So SeaWorld San Diego actually were kind enough to uh, give us their space where they have their penguins and uh, we had to seek special approval with USDA to be able to have the birds in this space. Now imagine USDA does not want any disease to come in even though these birds were already in another zoo they needed to come in and be clean and they needed to make sure there weren't going to be any viruses or diseases being introduced. So it's very uh, stringent regulations all for good purpose. So we're really fortunate to be able to um, provide a USDA satellite quarantine. But what that meant for our husbandry team is that they could never work with our birds that we already had here because then they could transfer it to our birds here. So our whole staff was um, completely impacted by that. And we ended up bringing in a couple of staff uh, from the Cincinnati Zoo and from uh, Adventure Aquarium as well as Birch Aquarium to support the quarantine just being in um, the satellite area for that little bit over a month. You can see that they're dressed up in uh, basically like chemical suits. So anything that they would get in, they'd have to take a shower when they would get out. They would have to leave everything behind at the end of quarantine. They had to um, discard or properly uh, burn everything uh, because they weren't allowed to have anything left behind. And then they locked every single door and had to write on that door what was the time that it was locked and who locked it. And it was very um, serious uh, quarantine period. All that to be said, here they are. They're in their little pool doing really well. And um, it was such an exciting time. And I was like, really, I can't go in the quarantine. I could, I, I could have, but then I would have to be out for a while. So I had to watch everything through Kayla and she was down there sending photos and we had security cameras and we we're watching through cameras. And it was just, it was such an exciting time to actually have them here. And everyone did really well. The penguins made the trip from Australia to here. No issues. Uh, beautiful. They did really great. And everyone was feeding within like a day. So that's pretty exciting. You think, you know, how you feel after flying for that long. And, you know, there, it was a pretty, it was pretty long. We had an egg. <laughs> so that was pretty amazing. The, literally the day, uh, there was two eggs, technically. So the day they were leaving out of Melbourne, I got a call from them. And they're like, we had an egg. Oh, we were like, oh. <laughs> so they kept one of the eggs. And then after, so little penguins lay two, one to two. So we're waiting for this penguin. Was it going to lay the egg? It did, right? It laid the egg. And then uh, we were in quarantine. And then the egg had to have a special USDA log. Because now we have 
an egg, right? We just introduced potentially a live animal in the middle of quarantine when you were only permitted to have 15. You might have 16. It was like, oh. Anyways, it didn't end up being viable. But my goodness, in that time, uh, it was so exciting because we're like, did we just add another egg or another bird to our population? So you can see the picture on the left. This was the egg. And uh, they're a little bit... um, they're like the size of a chicken egg, you know, you can see there. And so Kayla, that's her hand. And how we determine that it's uh, not a viable egg is we candle it. So you put a, a flashlight through it and you can look to see if there's yolk or embryo development after a certain period of time. And so it, there was no development, but nonetheless, it was still pretty exciting for us. So we finished quarantine and now we have little blue penguins in our population. We already had little blue penguins from the Dallas World Aquarium, and now we have the imported uh, Australian birds. And so just to touch on uh, some of them, we have a naming program, and so that's why you see some of them don't have an official name yet, but you may have seen in the news lately too that uh, we named uh, socially uh, Azulito as our newest uh, naming program. Um, so the smallest of the penguins is our little uh, Rekka, and she's uh, 944 grams, and the largest male being 1,300 grams. So they're pretty close in weight when you think about that. That's not a lot of difference between. And then, of course, our youngest is four years, and then the oldest is being 12 years. And so we're really excited to have them in our population. And early on... We worked uh, with the marketing team to kind of make these profiles about these birds. And so purple, um, which indicates the color of the band and how we identify the bird. They also have numbers associated with them. But, you know, he's a finger biter, and, but he's pretty handsome. And so we, you know, want to have fun facts for people to uh, be able to talk to them and kind of to relate to them. And he really is, uh, Purple is a very great um, example of colonial life. He really isn't the first one to check out anything new. We have some that are really brave, like Magic. Um, he, he will be the first one to run out of the gate. Like, you open the gate and he's out. And he just then stands there and tells you how much he wants to move on. And, and then you have to push him back in. So um, these penguins have been uh, very, um, I don't know, life-changing, I suppose, for me. Like, I just, you know, if I'm ever having a bad day, I could just go out and say hi. And it's like an instant switch. So to be able to translate some of that into these stories has been really important. Break. We're going to talk about science. So Birch Aquarium, we're part of clearly UC San Diego, Scripps Institution of Oceanography, but we're not a research entity. That doesn't mean we don't do science. It just means that we really need to think about how we foster excellence in our care, making sure animal welfare is our top priority. Birch Aquarium, when we think about that, we need need to recognize the role in our community and how we protect our animals and how we strive to positively impact our planet. So in order to do all that, we really have to have the knowledge, the expertise, and the experience, and professional judgment to make those decisions on how we support science and uh, when and how we do that. And um, 
you know, we've been so fortunate, and it's actually one of our highlights from our accrediting body, the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, is how much um, behind-the-scenes work we're able to do in support of Scripps and UC San Diego, as well as other institutions' um, scientific endeavors. So we're really excited to be able to continue that work. You know, how do we draw the connections between science, the conservation programs, and our audience? What we spent a lot of time already talking about, our breeding program uh, relative to the penguins, we do it, you know, across the board with other programs, but we want to do that um, locally and far away. It could be from seahorses to uh, the penguins to corals. Um, So, you know, we need to be able to promote those broad conversations to all of our guests who come to us uh, looking for different things. Relative to the birds, we need to be able to get the message out that birds are indicators of what's happening in our ocean. So we talked about the food not being available. The birds don't have the diet. They're being impacted by that. They indicate what's happening. The food isn't available because of warming water and other things. So they are a window to our changing environment. We also do it through increasing our genetic diversity and sustainable population and then also the research opportunities. Scripps Institution has, uh, of, of oceanography has a long history with penguins, um, specifically about diving physiology and uh, diving limits and heart rates. So uh, Jerry Coyman and Paul Panganis have spent many, many years researching uh, penguins, not specifically little blue penguins, but we have this good basis for it. So how do we translate that uh, base into uh, what we want to do with little penguins. It's being really well received, actually. So already, um, in the short time that we've had them, we've had a couple interested researchers, and we've already kicked off um, work with Scripps researchers, uh, Vernet and Bowman, on the Penguano project. Penguano. So (laughs) it's understanding feces, right? and what microplastics are in those feces. So they're taking our uh, guano, the, pe- the penguin's guano, and they're um, developing sampling techniques for that. And then they will translate that technique into how they um, go into the field in the Antarctic. And so there's two students, a PhD candidate, I should say, Tammy Russell, who's been really focusing a lot on that, and a master's student who's been um, focusing on the sampling protocol. And so uh, this has just really begun, uh, and it's ongoing, and it'll be able to tell us also what's happening in our birds. So you think about, we have birds from Dallas World, we have birds from Australia, they're eating seafood that's been provided from the wild, are we seeing microplastics in anything? Because that's a different story, too, than just what's happening in the Antarctic. And I don't know, I, I, I like their, uh, their Penguano Project poster. <laughs> Big splat there. All right, so um, just recently, too, uh, associate researcher Dimitri Dehan uh, with um, Scripps also is uh, working and has been for a while now on the understanding thermal properties of birds uh, and their feathers and what the melanin means, right? So if the melanin has a certain property, so if it's a black feather, it might have so much, or if it's white or a red feather, they all indicate so much um, regulation. 
uh, in temperature. So um, we just kicked this project off literally last week. And there's more to come with this, um, but it's pretty neat to be able to see the thermal imaging of the penguins uh, and then in the top picture and then, of course, a hummingbird and what their um, images look like. In this, in this picture, it, it continues on with his work in feathers. So actually, the top photo was a black feather, then a white feather, and then a red feather down below. So the value of conservation and education. We really need to create conservations uh, and um, conversations and promote opportunities for our scientists to be able to work with us and for us to be able to work with others. And so I just really think there's almost endless opportunities for us to do that. I mean, I, I get really excited because remember I told you at the beginning, I'm a microbiologist framed person. I like disease. I mean, I don't like disease, but I like to be able to research that and find solutions for it. And I mean, you think about microbiome alone for uh, penguins or eDNA. So that's environmental DNA sampling where you can just pull a water sample and, and study that, what's in the water. And it can tell you. Um, behavioral animal health research, climate science, citizen science of penguins. I really would love to get our community involved in watching our birds over here. Give us some data. You know, we want to be able to transform our guests, um, and we need to be able to connect them to understanding and then protecting our ocean planet. The Beister uh, Little Blue Family Penguin um, Habitat. I'm nearing the end, everybody. So the, I hope that during this uh, presentation, I could take you maybe through some of this, um, where you feel joy and delight. Maybe you learned some things tonight, and that maybe you'll have some inspired action um, to make a difference. Maybe it's not specifically for little blue penguins, but maybe it is for the birds that are out there, the cormorants, the pelicans, the seagulls, or other birds that share their habitat that, you know, there is things that, you know, need to happen in our environment. If you didn't, I hope you did, but if you didn't, you need to come back and visit the birds in person because I definitely don't match up to a little penguin. And so... You go see them uh, on July 12th, July 13th, and see if you can get some joy from watching them. Will you love them? I bet you. And I bet you you're going to feel inspired to make a difference. This is just a plan view of what you'll experience whenever you come in. It's about 2,900 square feet. We said at the beginning it's one of the biggest changes that we've had um, in Birch's recent you know, history. It's 18,000 gallons of fresh Pacific Ocean seawater, and it can hold up to 40 penguins, and that includes our um, breeding program that we'll have. So we've already got some nesting behavior that's happening, so maybe we'll have some babies soon to be shared out for people to be able to see. In this area, we have life support systems, which are here, and the Penguin Care and Conservation Center, where we'll do all the uh, medical suite, basically, but also allow guests to come in. And then you'll be entering in from the Sea Dragon area just behind me in the deep part of the water to feel like you're immersed and then come up onto the beach and be able to see the penguins up close and personal uh, in their burrows and in the land. 
And so you go from what is an overhead environment to a shallow uh, environment where you can see them at different levels. So we're very excited to uh, welcome everybody to the habitat at the beginning of July. And this is a construction time-lapse video starting from September until this week, or last week, I think. This was in the education courtyard previously. You can see the shape of the building. And now this wooden frame is the actually shape of the tank walls. Okay, you'll see the windows going into the pool. There you go. And some rebar shaping the rock work. You can see the boardwalk for the sandy side of the habitat. See a lot of framing that's going overhead. That's for aviary mesh to prevent any predators from getting to our little penguins. And actually, as of today, uh, you can see uh, shade cloth and new uh, installations and uh, handrail. And so it's just, it's been changing so much. And it's been quite the project uh, for Birch and for myself personally. So again, come see the penguins at the beginning of July. And I just want to acknowledge some, some people just to say, you know, this is, only been possible because of generous gifts and donors and so I just thank you so much for that I have to thank Harry Helling and all of the Birch Aquarium leadership for this as well as Kayla and Dr. Kent the Birch husbandry team and the animal care program vets and Jordan in particular has been amazing all those videos all the pictures all the background that's all Jordan and the Beth uh, and the marketing team and then Margaret Lining Linen for allowing uh, this whole thing and promoting it and being so excited and supportive in all of the Scripps uh, oceanography leadership. But most of all, for me, uh, I have to just say thanks to my family for tolerating me for 20-some years of animal care and being passionate about everything related to animals. I got into a job that I love, and um, I'm happy to, that I was able to share it with you. So I just thank you, everybody, uh, for listening to me tonight so much. Thank you for a terrific presentation. That was really fascinating. Um, since you brought penguins from multiple populations, did you have to do, give them any time to acclimate? to get? To, what, was, what was the process of their becoming a community? Oh, the mixing of the colonies. Those were, those were great photographic <laughs> moments for us. So um, basically, because they're colonial, we don't really have to worry about some of the other challenges that might happen with some other animals where you maybe have to let them be introduced slowly, although we did treat it that way. They're, the way that the aviaries are set up, we can split uh, into four different aviaries and keep birds um, separated. Right now, actually, we do have them split just for breeding purposes. But that way it allows them to um, 
hear and see each other and have a moment which I think we allowed for 24 hours before we lifted the shifting door. But at that time, they instantly were communicating. We joked, too. We were like, do you think they could tell? Do they have accents, you know, <laughs> like between, like, can they tell the difference? But somehow they knew, you know, I mean, everybody's a little blue, right? And they introduced just fine. Yeah. Thank you for the information. It was very interesting. I have a question. So you said normally they leave up to six, around six years, right? And under human care, they can live up to 20. So my question is, are they able to reproduce or there is a limit? Are they able to reproduce to yeah. 20? R- right. Um, well, I think as they get into the older ages, they're, they're going to slow down. But they become of breeding age around two. And then every year, they can have multiple clutches if they so desire um so it in the the idea would be that yes between especially the younger ones right like i think the youngest we have is four years old so we would expect you know at least uh i would say at least 10 to 12 years of breeding activity from from her and being able to raise babies In uh, the slides, you show a lot of interaction, especially with your checking on them and checking their health and handling them a lot. Do they like that or or accept it, or does it make them anxious? Actually, that's a really great question. It does. My slide presentation makes it seem like we actually do uh, engage with them often, but we really don't. Those are just during procedures, and those or windows of time where we've taken a lot of photos of the procedures that we've been doing. So um, typically, especially little blues, um, they don't really want too much engagement as far as petting, you know, or uh, being held. So we try to move quickly and be done with it and take what photos we can. So they're a little bit different than, say, some of the other penguins maybe you would have engaged with at other facilities. So we're really lucky to have such wonderful programs for sustainability. In the wild, where they come from, are there steps being taken to help those wild populations grow as well? I think it's relatively a new um, issue for the little penguins because to date, they really, up until like the recent year or so, have been somewhat data deficient as to their populations. And now with the you know last year or two, the climate changing and the fish availability, people are watching it. And there's um, a lot of groups actually that, that are following the populations now. Um, There's a lot of research that's being done into the impacts to climate change and other things that are impacting the birds, but direct outcomes that would, you know, like rehabilitation, I don't know that that is occurring. I just don't have that answer. I'm sorry. Yes, I I have two questions. They're kind of interrelated. So um, a colonial group of birds, I, I take it in the wild, they don't stay together as families and that they... They mesh pretty seamlessly across different pods or different groups. And secondly, why are predominantly most of the the, uh, penguins that you have males? Is that just to control population growth? I'll start with your second question. Did you ask why ours were predominantly male? Yeah, there were about three females out of 15 or four, four. 
Yeah, so because we're in the in introductory period of the SSP program and there's five other institutions, um, the birds that we've gotten have been paired to mate. Uh, not everybody, though, however. Um, but you also have a saturation of the males to female, in, intentionally so. Some of the birds are going to end up um, moving on to Cincinnati Aquarium, uh, Zoo and Aquarium. So it, that wasn't like a product that intentional in the sense that we needed to have more males than females. It was a product of the genetic diversity that was available amongst the populations and how they came in from the zoos. And then once other facilities in the United States uh, are able to um, distribute out birds this upcoming year because they've been having chicks, then it shuffles everything. So the birds um, move based on on the genetic stud book. And um, your f first question, could you repeat it again? Oh, yeah, and no. Well, because they're so cl colonial in the sense that they don't have an issue with acclimating with each other, they don't need to move as a like a family group in that regard. Um, there's just minimum amounts of birds that need to be kept um, in a group, but not. We look at are they siblings? Are they how far down are they related? What's the genetic pool? After you have so many chicks, then so many have to move on to another institution, and so it's looked at in that regard from genetic standpoint. So I have a question about uh, the pairing up of the penguins. Are you choosing the breeding pairs, or are they making their own choices in that way? <laughs> and and one follow up question is where are they all living during the construction? So. Um, it's a little bit of both on how they're paired up. So right now we have them split between um, successful breeding pairs, and that's the two groups. And then if they were to mate with another, we don't stop that from occurring. If there was an egg that was produced, then we would have to switch the egg for a dummy egg, which is just like a wooden egg. Um, but we would not prevent um, any kind of breeding activity. And um, during this time, they're behind the scenes in a um, holding area that we have for specifically, we built actually in preparation for um, this whole project. So there's an, uh, another set of aviaries behind the scenes. Well, I want to thank Jen for a wonderful talk. I want to thank, yeah, yeah, just marvelous, Jen. Thanks. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.